Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Gita Jackson is a New York-based staff writer for Motherboard at Vice, covering internet culture and video games. We've been working on getting you on the show for a while, but I really think it's been a bit of a blessing because we can do a bit of a 2020 reflection somewhat now that we're well and truly into, you know, the last quarter. Absolutely. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I actually, it's funny that, you know, considering what we're going to be talking today, I actually just back from my first trip out of New York City since March, if not before March. I went upstate, so not violating any quarantine rules. And we're very close to uh, one of these liberal brinky dang community health centers. So we can get a COVID test right after. And uh, we just went upstate and enjoyed not being in our own apartment, me and my boyfriend. So... I'm feeling great. I have a lot of apple cider here to, to drink. Very, very good. I, we're at this kind of tail end or just about like unlocked now in Melbourne and I feel like people might not know what to do with them. So I don't know what to do with myself, to be honest. I'm yeah. like, no, I've just been given yeah. too much power and too much control over my movements. Yeah, it's really interesting in New York where things... We were the, basically one of the first states in the United States to actually take the pandemic seriously, although not as seriously as we should have. It's ridiculous that Cuomo is writing a book about his pandemic response when we are still having a pandemic. <laughs> and it's like very evident to everyone. I live in one of the zip codes. It's a, a, apparently like a warning spot for cases going back up. And it's just, it feels ridiculous to me that people are at all talking about reopening the economy here where I am. But like when I remember the first time I saw another person, like another real life person, just like my my boss, my desktop computer had stopped working. And my boss was like, I will bike to the office and get you your work laptop that you left in the office before it shut down. And he came to my door wearing a mask, you know, very far away. And instead of saying hello to him, I just kind of like opened my arms for my laptop. I forgot like what you do when you see someone else. <laughs> he was like, hello. <laughs> That is like, that I think is the fear that so many of us have. Like now that Melbourne is kind of pulling out of this intense lockdown, I think that like, how do we ease back into social interactions while also being like safe and making sure that we're still wearing masks and all of that stuff? We know more about the science now. So people are able to have very limited get togethers. We I have a backyard in New York, very rare to have a backyard. I have a backyard and one of my other friends has a backyard. And so we've managed to have very distanced get-togethers with everyone we've gone. In New York, it's getting colder, so no one wants to do that. And like you'll find, here's something I bet you're going to discover, is that for mask-on hangouts, people want to talk with a mask on for maybe two hours, and then everyone wants to go home and take off their mask. It's just it's like really Zoom hard hangouts. to do. It's like yes. Zoom Hangouts. Yeah. You really just can't be on here talking to people in front of a laptop for more than, I mean, it's two hours really is hard. very generous. <laughs> yeah. Two hours yeah. is generous, yeah. So I, I see, I, we'll see. See how it goes. Good luck. Thank it you. is different. You know, it's to not socialize for a long time and then have to do it again. It's the psychological toll. And I mean, I think our lockdown did not last nearly as long as Melbourne's. So it's... 
it was very, very hard to get into the group. You do find after you get out of it, you forget what to do when you are around other people. Other than talk about how horrible you feel, I feel that kind of too. Yeah, I feel you. It's yeah. I don't know. We'll see how we go. I mean, there's also like you know your body kind of gets used to it because it has yep. to. Otherwise, you'll be in a constant state of shock. So now that we've adapted, yep. it's a matter of like readapting and and getting a little bit out of it. So I don't know. We'll see how. I mean, I'll let you know if I'm if I've met up with anyone <laughs> next week. <laughs> Good luck. So we originally wanted to chat with you on this show about a piece that you'd written about being in the cool zone. And it was in June or July when you wrote it. And I saw this terminology being used on Twitter a little bit. And I never really did the search. And when I read your piece, I thought, aha, I kind of get it now. Can you give us a bit of a quick summary or overview of what the cool zone, in inverted commas, is? Sure thing. So the cool zone comes from this really great tweet from Sean R. Moorhead, who is this kind of online figure of the left who's had a lot of very, very viral tweets. This is one of his most viral ones with 30.9K likes, six over 6,000, almost 7,000 retweets or whatever the hell Twitter uses engagement for. The tweet reads, if employment exceeds 30% and distrust of the political process becomes widespread, there is a danger that the United States will enter what historians call the cool zone. And the end of that sentence, obviously, shouldn't be the cool zone, right? That's where the humor of the, that's where the joke comes in. Like, what what will happen when that happens, which was at the time of the, that tweet was written in April of 2020, a looming prospect in the United States of that level of unemployment and the political process has, like, obviously and clearly gotten completely disrupted in the United States the end of that sentence should really be a state of widespread panic and disaster. But there's a flip side to the United States economy and culture entering into a place that it has not gone in a very long time, maybe not even before. It's that new things become possible. New ideas become possible. When I wrote that article, I was living in a slightly different part of Brooklyn where Every single night, people in my building, I could see them making protest supplies like every day. And I'd walk down the street just to get some air and people would put signs in their windows that said Black Lives Matter, justice for George Floyd, justice for Breonna Taylor. And there were beautiful chalk drawings in my neighborhood on the sidewalk celebrating the lives of people who had been killed by police in the United States. A couple of times in my apartment, I would just be sitting on my fire and a march would come down my street. One time that happened, actually, a march came down my street and my boyfriend was in it. And I like ran out to go march with him. So the feeling, you know, that was something that could not have become, could not have been possible in New York if it weren't for the complete disruption and collapse of the system. When it became totally clear that Cuomo and de Blasio, de Blasio's American New York, were more interested in having a pissing match over their ability to control New York City than actually provide to it for its citizens. There is an incredible amount of mutual aid organizations like the People's Bodega that have taken up and taken space where the government isn't filling it. The cool zone is a place of pure terror, to be sure. You know, these are situations that we shouldn't have to be in. We should have a system that works. But Living in it means that we can also begin to see people changing their minds into a more radical place. The George Floyd protests that also gave rise to the movement 
to defund the police in the United States. And that was something that I've believed in in a long time, you know, I've been supportive and prison abolition as well, but has not actually been anywhere close to a mainstream idea until after this last summer. So that's what's possible in the coup zone. Something that becomes an unthinkable political position becomes mainstream. Yeah. And the cool zone, I guess, is something, you know, when we think about within the context of history, it's, it's, it's moments of like, it's, it's a kind of turning point, right? It's when the, when movements really start to ramp up and things really maybe start to change and moments of that, that either spark something that, you know, something that is so tragic um, sparks uh, a lot of passion for a big number of people um, or, or something really, really begins to kind of change the narrative of a society. And the cool zone is great to reflect on when you're, when you're not necessarily in it because it's like, wow, what would it have been like if I was part, you know, for me it would be what would it be like when, if I was part of like the revolution back home in Eritrea? What would it be like if that moment happened, knowing that actually there were moments of, you know, real kind of destruction and terror and, and lots of really scary things happen then. Yeah. The U.S. truly entered the cool zone with the election of Donald Trump. But like, I feel like a lot of people's brain, like people took, it took this global pandemic for people to truly understand that there is no normal anymore. The things that we thought were normal are just not going to come back. I, you mentioned, you know, thinking about what you would have done and other points of history that have entered the cool zone. It sounds dismissive, but it's just like a handy way to talk about it. Like I think about my dad, who grew up in Selma, Alabama during the civil rights movement where he marched on Birmingham and, you know, he was put in solitary a lot. And I've always thought, you know, if I were back then, I would want to be exactly like him. And I don't know if I'm living up to his memory exactly, but right now we're in a situation where every, this is the thing you're going to tell your children about this moment in time. Like, what did you do how did you step up for your neighbors? It's important to actually take a stand now. I think the cool zone also implies like a sense of necessity, <laughs> like a, mm-hmm. there's a sense of urgency now to everything you do because you know that the history of the world will mark this moment and you're going to want to remember being not being a coward. Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about a global pandemic, something that in this generation is quite unprecedented. We've not really experienced something that has shut down so many different industries or shut down so many, so much of our lives. This is a moment, you know, in many ways to really rethink in a country like Australia and, of course, in the United States, like our real obsession with neoliberal capitalism, right, our real obsession with, you know, the fact that, the economy, whatever that is, what does the economy mean for one person or for two people or for a family or a community or a neighbourhood? And really, really considering and unpacking the way that this is impacting the lives of the majority of the people and whether this is sustainable. And the answer is that it isn't sustainable. People have known this and people have said this for (laughs) decades. Mm -hmm. But now it's kind of, it really kind of hits you in the face. It's at the forefront because it's becoming unsustainable for more people, right? Yeah suddenly it becomes way more important. Yeah, there's no part of life that this hasn't really touched. There's no class bracket you can be in to not feel the effects of the pandemic in some way. Like maybe it's just like your avocados are more expensive or we can't go to brunch right now. But that's still an effect, right? This means that you now have an entryway an understanding that will allow you to more cognitively, more emotionally understand people with radical politics. I feel like 
in America, the neoliberal mindset, especially in like very blue areas, very democratic areas that already have liberal governments, the idea can sort of the pervasive idea is that we could have everything we want if it weren't for all those pesky conservatives. And that leads to some really like upsetting ways to think about other human beings, about who deserves rights and who doesn't deserve them. But the thing about a pandemic is that pandemics don't care how you vote. Like a virus can't tell that. Like you're going to mess up by this virus regardless of what you do. And that means that you see people in real time open up their hearts to a something else new, to a new idea, because they've seen, they can have very physical evidence that the way things were just do not work anymore. And I think I've been really hopeful that things would go a little bit more far, like farther than they could have. And they have right now, like when some basketball teams boycotted some playoff games, I was really hoping that the strike would last longer than one night, for instance. But I mean, also LeBron James made basketball stop. He made basketball stop for a night because he, him and the rest of the association were so upset about Breonna Taylor. And that is something new. That is a radical change. That's still radical, even if it didn't lead to a general strike, right? It's been hard to sort of measure my expectation because I'm like, I was there like cheerleading as everyone got on board, like here rallying the flag, like we've been waiting for you. But I know that the most confusing thing about living in this period of history is that even though answers seem so obvious the change still moves so slowly yeah and it feels you know yep that's that's all I can say and it feels (laughs) really exciting but quite terrifying at the same time because when you realize that possibly this this could be a, a turning point or maybe you know you you then think like has the have we done enough did we get to the point that we needed to for things to actually change and so there is then that kind of Mm -hmm. point of how do we keep this going how do we keep this momentum up what do we do to sustain this where do we go now right now that the conversation's out in the mainstream what's the next step what do we do like how do we how do we how do we get there how do we get to the point that we want to get to and it's it's like you know you really you've really identified this moment as a key moment and now it's a matter of working out what to do with it collectively and that is probably the probably the heart of the turning point right yeah It's not like anyone's written about who or how to have a revolution before. So we don't know. Just kidding. Uh, It's like like the number one. I feel like a lot of people are getting introduced to how much leftists fight with each other. (laughs) Like how little they actually agree with each other. There are so many different thoughts and ideas and how to strategize in this moment. And the only thing I witnessed be successful is to go hyper-local and to think about organizing in terms of your neighbors or block your neighborhood. And that has those those kinds of organizations, they, they can create material effects that you can see in your everyday life. And like it just also, you know, one of the great things, the, one of the only great things I'll count has having this pandemic having done for me is that it forced me to get to know my neighbors. So if I'm having an emergency, I can't necessarily call any of my friends, but I can knock on my, you know, the next door neighbor or call out, you know, from my window to the backyard when my cat got out, someone, you know, down the block, let me their ladder because they heard me calling for her. Uh, Thank you to that person. You were very nice. There have been so many social movements that have reached this point and then sort of been stymied or been caught up in arguments over over ego, essentially. And it's also, you know, 
any kind of social movement is going to have a backlash to it as well. And in the United States, we've seen a credibly strong and very violent backlash to the idea of a social change. But at the same time, I mean, I think we're after you sort of see the extent of the dissolution of the uh, governmental processes that have happened here, you also understand that that backlash matters less and less and less. But there is also, you know, fear is a, a very effective tool to get people to stop doing things. And I think the fear of being murdered by a proud boy combined with the fear of catching COVID-19 combined with the fear of just being alive right now in a time that is very scary to be alive in, it does actually have a chilling effect on some people. And it's bringing those people into a community that cares about them. That's the only way that we're actually going to create a movement that can is sustainable throughout several, like through, not just through a cool zone, but into a more stable zone of history. Absolutely. I think the hyperlocal is really important. I've also kind of noticed that here, you know, and it's also you see effective change faster because it's targeted mm. and it's intentional yeah. and it's about this specific space. And then that is really motivating, right? Because you yeah. see you see what happens and you can see that it can happen and that's quite like a special moment. I did want to ask specifically about this election because really... It's a lot, like it's it's a lot here, <laughs> overwhelmed yeah. and exhausted by the debates, you know, like it's on our, te- like it's on television here in Melbourne, like it's just so much and I just feel for my people across the water because really the options that you have, similar to the options that we have here in Australia, but I feel like this might be a little bit more polarising, are yeah. really not particularly exciting either way. Oh, no. <laughs> They both suck. I mean, Joe Biden is just a neoliberal capitalist. You know, he's proudly said that he's pro-fracking. Meanwhile, in North Brooklyn, there are activists who are getting arrested for physically stopping construction of a fracking pipeline. He's just like not, doesn't really have his finger on the pulse. And he doesn't really know what's going on. And on the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who is a walking nightmare man, who I don't know how he got COVID-19 and didn't die. I shouldn't say that I hope he dies. I will not say that that I hope he dies, but just think about, let that thought marinate in your head for a little bit. (laughs) What did they give him? Uh, What are they continuing to give him? Because he definitely still has it. I got it. And I can see in the, he does this thing that I did definitely do when I was the sickest with COVID-19. I had a very mild case. The worst part was I really just had severe exhaustion every single day for two weeks, like at the level of fall while trying to type up an email exhaustion, wild, wild stuff. Um, and he did the thing that I would do often, like during the, the debate and like after and other after uh, public performances, where he just like clearly start falling asleep a little bit in the middle of a sentence. And I'd be like, I know that. <laughs> it's easy to respond to this election with humor because I literally don't know what else to do. Uh, my, I am, I was a very strong supporter of Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And I, you know, the politicking that was done during the primaries, I have made my peace with it, even though I still wish it was Bernie. And I'm willing to vote for Joe Biden, even though he strongly supports several things that I think are really horrible. At the same time, I mean, I, I most of what is galvanizing me to vote, and I know that this has become quite a contentious issue in the United States because of our two-party system, really does leave a lot of people with absolutely no choice. But 
part of it is watching what has happened in India with Modi and Modi's second term, where his fascist tendencies have only gotten more extreme. And I can very easily imagine Trump emboldened by winning a second election, going the same course as Modi and really encouraging fascist violence from his supporters. But it's all very intense to think about. It's intense to think about the idea that one, you know, we were taught, I was a taught as a child that America is a leader of a free world. And now I can see very clearly that it is in fact a failed state. And, mm-hmm. you know, two, like things go badly. If the Republicans have, they've had this like 50 year project of gaming elections and packing the court and trying to just com- expand the executive powers until they can literally rule the country. If they manage to succeed, if we can't interrupt that project, I do not know if I will be able to live in this country, if that's something I will be able to comfortable doing as a person who wants to like have children and raise a family. And this is a, a choice that I've sort of mocked people in before for, for saying like, oh, if Obama loses, I'm going to move to Canada, which is like, there is, there's a lot of shit going on in Canada too. Please do not run your mouth <laughs> about Canada if you don't really know the political environment of these countries you're talking about. But we are facing a point where their politics have become so polarized that it is difficult to even fix your mind on November 3rd without having a panic attack. This is is a conversation I've had with a lot of my friends recently where it's like they know what they're doing. A lot of them have voted already or I'm voting early this week in person because of the post office situation. Like just another thing that the Republicans did just completely in front of everyone just try to you know, sabotage the election by completely undermining the post office. It's just difficult to think about what you will do to survive that day. We live in a world where the news cycle is so intense and extreme that even being able to relax on that day, like I don't know what I'm going to have to do just to be able to face the results, you know, good or bad. I think it's just going to kill me. You know, I wish I could give you words of wisdom about how people are dealing with it. But all I know is that people are just slowly going insane and trying as hard as I can to not talk or think about it. There has been a huge push in media and on tech platforms to get people to, you know, make voting plans and trying to educate people on the realities of voter suppression. And at the very least, I can see a lot of good things happening from those things. A lot of the stuff that I can count as good politically in our society don't really result from electoral politics anymore because it's just hard enough to get the party that I am a registered member of to care about the needs of working people. And then, you know, it's ridiculous, but there really is no party that represents the working class. (laughs) This sounds insane, but it's true. There's no party that represents the working class in America. And I have to take my wins where I can get them. You know, the idea that we have a broader understanding of what voter suppression looks like, that we understand now that when there is a long line at a voting site, that isn't democracy in action, that's a failure of democracy. That raises my spirits just a little bit. Because, you know, like with the cool zone, once you see how broken things already are, then you can actually imagine ways to fix them. Yeah, and and choose, actively choose and do something that will ensure that you don't have to deal with them forever. Well, Gita, it was really awesome chatting with you. I feel like we covered a whole heap of things, but it was really (laughs) great to chat with you. All the best.
Good luck. I will thank be thinking you. of you specifically. But yeah, thank you so much for your time and for all the work and stay strong. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to be early voting tomorrow. Hopefully, hopefully the line's not too long. Fingers crossed. Keita Jackson is a New York-based staff writer for Motherboard Advice covering internet culture and video games. You can jump online if you want to check out her work. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are grossly overrepresented in the out-of-home care system, which is leading to disconnection from family and culture. Richard Weston is a Merriam man and the CEO of SNAKE, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care. He's also the co-chair of a campaign called Family Matters that works to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people grow up safe and cared for in family, community and culture. Richard, thank you for taking the time this morning. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Just to kind of get right stuck into it, are things getting worse when it comes to the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in out-of-home care? Yes, simple answers, yes. The trajectory is that Aboriginal children nationally are overrepresented in the out-of-home care system at a rate that's 10 times that for non-Indigenous children. And the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare tells us that if we don't do something about it now, that within 10 years' time, that rates or the, the number of our kids in, in out-of-home care are going to double within the next 10 years. So, look, it, it is a crisis and it's, it's an alarming situation and, you know, we need to, to be bringing a whole range of elements of the system together to really tackle this, this huge challenge that we have. Is there a structural problem with how child protection assessments are made? Is there some kind of big, you know, like what, what is it? What's, what's going on? Why? Yeah, Why? Well, that's a great question. Look, there's a systemic, I think there is a systemic problem within the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people generally uh, are treated in this country or are seen in this country. So the removal of children from their families, from their community, from their kinship structure and the pressure that places on them in terms of identity and a sense of belonging has been going on for more than 100 years. It's, you know, that's what the Stolen Generations was all about. And the Stolen Generations is said to have finished in the early 70s, but as any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person will tell you, the removal of our children has really continued unabated. It's just come under a different headline. It's not called Stolen Generations anymore. It's called uh, Child Protection or Out-of-Home Care. So there is a systemic issue that's related to the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are viewed. There's a, there's a challenge with the impact of trauma on our communities and, and how that impacts on families, how it brings people under notice of authorities like the child protection system and you know there's this inherent racism in systems that, that deal mainstream systems that deal with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and really the only way to address this challenge is going to require you know 
more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people involved in the system being able to have greater control over what's going on for their children, their families and their communities. And so one kind of big problem is that when children are taken from their families, they are not necessarily then taken to other family members, right? If they're taken from their parents, they are often within the system. It's now out of home care. There is a kinship care system, but that's not working as well as it as it should necessarily. What's what's going on? Well, there's a there's a long-standing principle called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle, which has a range of elements to it. It has focused on prevention, mm. working in partnerships, placement of and the placement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. If children do have to be taken out of the family home, then the strong preference is that they be placed with members of the kinship system mm. or another Aboriginal family. Now, that's that's a very strongly held principle by, by Aboriginal people and Aboriginal organisations that work in the space. And that, that principle has been recognised in policy. It's recognised in some legislation. It just hasn't been put into practice as as well as it well as it, as well as it should be. So there are increasing numbers of of children being placed with non Indigenous carers, and that poses a huge risk to uh, Aboriginal children and their families in terms of a, a child's connection to their family, connection to their culture, and their their identity is also under threat as as that starts to happen. And again, I think there's, you know, you, you ask, well, what's going on and, and what's a systemic issue? Well, I think there's, there, there needs to be a greater involvement of Aboriginal people working in those systems to help guide these and implement the child placement principle, but there needs to be stronger partnerships with Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to, to really be providing some of these out-of-home care services, some of these placement services and really supporting, wrapping around supports around children and their families so kids can stay connected even if they aren't living with their immediate family. Mm. It must be frustrating and difficult work for organisations like yours because there is always reports, there's always, you know, lots of information that comes out. It's like proven by academics, it's proven by community, it's proven by people who work in the system and then there's just that disconnect between what is clearly what needs to happen or a thing that is clear, that clearly needs to happen and then what actually happens and then a few years later the numbers go up and then there, you know, there is a kind of cycle of that that is constantly happening. What are you seeing? What are like maybe some positives that you are seeing? What is changing for the better, if anything at all? Look, yeah, look, we paint a a pretty grim picture, don't we? But I I think there are some green shoots of positive stories happening and particularly here in Victoria with the way that community control services are being engaged in in the child protection system now. We have one of the largest established organisations in Australia now is VACA, which is a Victorian Aboriginal child care organisation now. They're playing a huge role in the the child protection system and, and in particular showing a, a really good steady increase in, in children that have to be removed or have to be placed in the system being placed in kinship care. So, uh, you know, it's a really good example. It's a really good model for how we can deliver child protection in a culturally strong way, in a, in a, in a culturally appropriate way. It involves Aboriginal leadership in the organisation, 
It involves Aboriginal communities being involved in the decision-making process and being consulted, uh, you know, as, as children move, move through the system. But importantly, kids are maintaining connection, you know, to their families, to their communities and to their culture. And, you know, if we could replicate that model more broadly across Australia, there's some, there's some good work going on in Queensland, but other jurisdictions are still playing catch-up. And that's the thing that makes the difference. When, In my experience, I've been working in Aboriginal affairs for, for nearly 30 years, and the things that make a difference is when Aboriginal people are leading, when Aboriginal people are involved in the development and design of a service, a program or a system, and when they deliver the service program or system. So, you know, and that's what's happening, you know, starting to happen here more and more in Victoria, but we need to see it more widely across Australia. Yeah, and there's that campaign that you are a co-chair of, the Family Matters campaign. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, the Family Matters campaign has been running now for uh, probably eight years, I I think, around eight years, and it's it's focused on this issue of over-representation of Aboriginal kids in the out-of-home care system. And every year the campaign publishes a report that is based on information provided by government systems about the numbers of Aboriginal kids in the system and going into the system, what improvements they're making. But we also get feedback from the community to and really do a sort of a comparison of what the state is saying versus what the community mm. organisations and the community voices are saying about what's happening for children. So we really, it's really trying to hold systems to account and particularly around those increasing numbers of kids. We, we're trying, you know, encouraging governments to implement the child placement principle in a more active way, that they're accountable for that, they're providing feedback about how they're performing against those principles. So the campaign is really trying to elevate the voice of the community, of children in the system and of our organisations to really try and bring those numbers down, so shining shining a light on what's going on. And I think there are some things that are improving, but we've got a long way to go. And I think there's some hopefulness in new closing the gap agreement which which has a target around reducing the number of kids going into care but also about stronger partnerships with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal organisations and greater investment into community controlled organisations to help deliver some of these services and ultimately get better outcomes for our kids and our, our communities. Richard, you mentioned that you've been working in community-controlled organisations for many years. What do you hope to see in this area in the future? What do you? What are? What's kind of that ultimate hope for you as someone who's worked in in the sector for a long time and is of the community? What does that look like for you? Look, I, it's really about. The focus really has to be on, to me, it's about our children, you know, to what, what sort of future do we want to create for our children? So you know, I want to see more of our children growing up in their families, in their communities, strong in their culture, proud of their identity, living lives that are, you know, childhoods that are full of, that are vibrant, that are happy, you know, full of really strong, strong family and community relationships and setting children up for a life of hopefulness and participating culturally in the, in the cultural life of their community but also in the ec- economic life of the community. And I think that the way we can get there is just, uh, particularly in the out-of-home care system, is involving more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership, people to work in the sector, but our, our community-controlled organisations that are governed by Aboriginal people, you know, managed and led by Aboriginal people, and ultimately 
have more regard, are more interested and care more about our people than mainstream systems do. You know, we we have very deep connections with our, our country, with our history. We've been around for 60,000 years. All of these things come together. They're real strength of our communities and, and our culture. And, and what Aboriginal organisations do, the leadership does, is we build on those strengths. We don't go into looking at, at what we haven't got. Mm. We, we look at what are the strengths of there and we're able to build on that. And that's what that's the sort of work that organisations like VACA do and other Aboriginal organisations around the country do. And that's why we need to have more investment in that community-controlled sector. And I think the more that we do that, the more that we can push governments to partner with us more effectively respect us more, show more respect and more regard and, and willingness to collaborate on these really challenging issues, then we're going to get better outcomes. And all the evidence about what works for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people just shows that that's, that's the correct approach to take. We just have to get over some of those, those systemic hurdles around racism and discrimination and move forward together. I really hope we do, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Richard Weston is a Merriam man and the CEO of SNAKE, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare. He's also the co-chair of a campaign called Family Matters that works to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people grow up safe and cared for in family, community and culture. If you want to support the Family Matters campaign, jump on familymatters.org.au and check out the Take Action tab It has been such a fun show today. Thank you so much to all of my guests this morning. I spoke with Richard Weston, who is a Merriam man and the CEO of SNAKE, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care and the co-chair of a campaign called Family Matters that works to ensure that you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people grow up safe and cared for in family, community and culture. And we spoke about the findings of a new report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that shows Indigenous children in out-of-home care are becoming increasingly disconnected from family and culture. If you want to support the Family Matters campaign, jump on familymatters.org.au and check out the Take Action tab. And I guess kind of bringing this topic back up to the very top of the show where I spoke a little bit about the um, desecration of sacred sites and the cutting down of the Jabberung trees. You know, there are reports, there's a report here that says that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are having disconnected experiences to culture and family and, and you know, the government knows this and the government is trying to support and help out what is within this situation and then at the same time we have a Victoria Labor government Cutting down trees, sacred sites, sacred birthing trees that are the inheritance of the Jabbarung people. And so there's something in there that is just not connecting. Can, you know, there's a literal desecration and cutting and chopping down of trees and that, of course, will cause some sort of disconnection for people. And so, you know, a bit of rambling, but it just feels like something isn't connecting and something is not right. Big thanks also to Gita Jackson, who's a Brooklyn-based staff writer for Vice. We spoke about the cool zone and what it means for us to take action and reimagine our futures while we're in the midst of a crisis. You can check out Gita's work on the Vice website. Be safe, especially now that we can go out to lots of different restaurants and hang out with family inside and outside. Be really safe. Look after yourself, look after your community, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap. 
a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.